I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Shemto for uh, arranging this and uh, always being such a, a fine uh, friend, Talmud, I don't know what to call him, but he's everything. And I'm a little scared to speak in front of him because he knows all of my Torah, all of my Shiram, he knows better than I do, so I'm always uh, nervous that he's going to be rolling his eyes and saying, heard this already. But we're going to go back this evening to basics. I was thinking long and hard about what I'd want to share with this Chashavah Elam. And I think what I want to do in honor of Shavuos is just going back to what Torah is at the most essential level. Just as a refresher, as a reminder of what we're about to accept come Shavuos. Torah is something that preceded the world. Torah was not something that was suddenly written or given to Moshe Rabbeinu at Harsinai. Torah was something that was actually in existence for thousands of years before the, the world was even a thought. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has this divine Torah and he made a world in order to share the Torah with Klal Yisrael after Bria Salem, after creation. At the very first word in the Torah, when it says Bereshis, Rashi right away says, Bishvil Torah Shenikra Reshis. The whole world was created for the Torah, which is called Reshis. Torah is called in Tanakh, it's the first, it's the earliest, it's the most supreme, essential thing in the world. And the entire world, created the entire world all because of the Torah. Which is an amazing thing if you stop and think about it. Because... That means that everything that we see in the world is really somehow, some way, because of the Torah. I'll give you a few examples. There was a, a train that was built in Russia in the early 1900s. It was called the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And it was built by the Tsar of Russia to extend from one end of Russia all the way to the other. Russia is a huge country. If you ever look at a map, Russia is like half the map is Russia, literally. And to get from one end to the other, it's almost impossible, unless you have an airplane, it's impossible to get from one end to the other because it's all ice. Siberia, right in the middle, it's, uh, it's too cold, it's too bitter, it's too dead in the center of Russia to connect the two parts of the country. But the Tsar felt that it was important for him politically, for whatever reason, to build this long Russia, this long Trans-Siberian Railroad. It's going to cut right through Siberia. And it took them years and years and years, maybe decades. It took them the equivalent today of maybe $100 billion, like a crazy amount of money. I mean, that, today that's not so much money, actually. I mean, Biden is just doing that, you know, I think he did it last night in his sleep. He raised $100 billion from us. But 
It was a lot of money in those days. $100 billion in those days was crazy. Nobody knew what he was doing. Why would he do this? And, and it, so many people died building this railroad, and it was just a big mystery. Why he, who, what, for what, for whom? Until World War II broke out, and there was a yeshiva called the Mir Yeshiva in Poland, and with one act of hashkacha after another act of hashkacha, somehow the entire yeshiva was able to get visas to escape the heart of Nazi Poland at the time. It was uh, there was a Japanese. Um, Diplomat in this in near where the mirror was, his name was Sugihara, and he for some reason took a liking or had had mercy, had pity on these poor yeshiva boys, and he was stamping passports for weeks and day and night until he himself had to leave, and he was still stamping as he was on the train with his family, stamping more and more escape visas for the Jews. And they got onto this Trans-Siberian Railroad, and the entire Mir Yeshiva was rescued. It went all the way to the other end. It went, then it went on a little boat to Japan, and then from Japan it went to China, to, to Shanghai, and that's where they spent uh, the years of the war, and they set up a Yeshiva there, and they were able to flourish, uh, and, and they all survived. The whole, it's the only Yeshiva that survived intact throughout World War II. And the Briskorov, the great Rabbi Salvechik, used to say that, now I understand why HaKadosh Baruch Hu arranged this Trans-Siberian Railroad to be built. It was a big mystery, but not anymore. The mystery has been solved, because we see the whole railroad was just built to save the Mir Yeshiva. Now, if I would tell this to you know some people on the street, they'd think I'm crazy. But if we're speaking tonight with B'nai Torah, with people that are... That, are, that adhere to Torah and understand a little bit about the Torah or a lot about the Torah, then it doesn't sound so crazy. That everything in our lives, everything in the world, is surrounded and is for and is because of Torah. Everything. Everything is somehow, some way. It could be in Brooklyn, and it could be in Australia, and it could be in, 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 in Afghanistan. And you think, well, what does something in Afghanistan have to do with I don't know. But it has to do with terror. The entire world was created just for the terror. And that's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu said that come Vav Sivan, on the sixth day of Sivan, if Klal Yisrael accepts the terror, mutav, that's fine. Then the world can continue to go on. The Imlav, but if you don't accept the Torah, Klal Yisrael would have said, no thanks. Instead of saying Nasa Vinishma, that we're going to accept sight unseen, unconditionally, if let's say they would have said, not in the mood, no, it doesn't seem so interesting, the whole world would have exploded. The Imlav, ani I will return the entire world to utter nothingness, like what happened before this world was created, because the entire world was created for the Torah, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu should be able to give on Shavuos the Torah to Meshach Rabbeinu, to give to Klal Yisrael. And if that would not have happened, okay, then there's no more purpose in the world.
I'll give you an interesting application of this, that the entire world, that the Torah preceded the world and the whole world is for the Torah. This is a very hard thing to understand. It's a hard concept to understand. I hope I'll explain it well. We know that Avram Avinu kept Pesach. There are so many chazals that uh, when the three angels came, it was Pesach. It's always Pesach. Always Pesach, right? Like Pesach. It's always going to be Pesach. And Oig Melech HaBashin visits Avram. He was baking matzahs, Avram Avinu. Now, when you're a child growing up and learning that Avram Avinu kept Pesach, it's okay. He was from, he was, a, he was a Jew. He kept Pesach. Which Jew doesn't keep Pesach? But then when you get older, you start wondering, what does that mean he kept Pesach? Pesach Yitzias Mitzrayim, which is what we're celebrating on Pesach, that we left Egypt, that's not going to happen for another 400 years from Avram Avinu. At least 400 years is going to pass before we go into, before we escape from Egypt. And Pesach is a time that we're celebrating our redemption from Mitzrayim. So what's Avram Avinu eating matzahs on Seder night, on the 15th day of Nisan, if it's not commemorating any Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim hasn't happened yet. What are you doing, Avram Avinu? You're eating matzahs? For what? Nothing happened. They didn't leave yet with the matzahs on their back and, you know, and leaving very quickly. The, the dough didn't have... A, that none of this was even a dream 400 years earlier. But yet Chazal teach us that Avram Avinu kept Pesach. He ate matzahs. He had carbon Pesach. What's going on? So the Beis HaLevi explains this, and he says the following, and again, you have to sort of bear with me a little bit, because it's, it's going to flip over everything that you think on its head. But this is the Ashkafa of the Torah. Listen to this. Again, the Torah preceded the world. Thousands of years before the world existed, there was a Torah. In the Torah, it says that on the night of the 15th, of Nisan, the Jews are obligated to eat matzah, and they have to eat the carbon Pesach, and they have to eat marar, and they have to tell over to their children about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. All of these were mitzvahs that really preceded the world. Now, HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to make a narrative so that it somehow makes sense. Why are we sitting on the night of the 15th of Nisan eating matzahs? For what? Okay. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. We're going to have, you're going to be slaves in Egypt for a long time. Then you're going, to, you're going to go out. Now you have a little bit of an idea why you're eating matzahs. Why? But that's not really the reason. Those are pretexts that were created in order to give us a little bit of understanding as to why we're eating matzahs. You know the real reason why we're eating matzahs? Because before the world was created, Hashem commanded in the Torah that on the night of the 15th of Nisan, for whatever reason, you have to eat flatbreads. And you have to eat a, a sacrifice. And you have to eat marah. Why? doesn't matter why. Hashem wanted this. This is in his Torah. So Avram Avinu, it's not strange anymore why Avram Avinu would eat matzahs before Yitzhak Because Yitzhak Mitzrayim wasn't the reason why we were eating matzahs on the night of the Seder. The reason why there's a night of the Seder is in order to give us some idea why we're eating matzahs. So everything can happen very logically almost before the Seder, before Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Avraham Avinu kept the mitzvahs of the Torah because the Torah says to do something even if the event didn't happen yet. It doesn't matter. The Torah says that you have to do this. This preceded the world. 
Now here's the kicker about Liman Atayra. And this is something that you have to remember. And, and there is nothing more valuable in terms of schar, in terms of reward that Hashem is awaiting to give us than learning Torah. All mitzvahs are very valuable. And even for the smallest mitzvah that we do, we get schar that we can't fathom. If you look in Rav Dessler's Michtam Eliyahu, he says that one of the first pieces in the book, he says that for this, he, he says this from a Mishnah and others, we're not going to go into the specific, specifics of the Mishnah, but suffice it to say that if you take, listen to this, every pleasure that every human being ever had in the history of the world, from day one till the end of time, trillions of people having untold amounts of pleasure, from the beginning of time to the, every single human being, and you would be able to put that, let's say, in a capsule. And if you would take it, you would have all of that pleasure combined. That would not equal the amount of pleasure that you're going to have in the world to come for the smallest, worst mitzvah that you ever did in your life. When I say worst mitzvah, I mean the mitzvah that you did without almost any thought. You did it in, in the way that was like you're least proud of. It was like such a schlocky mitzvah, like you didn't really do it well at all. But for that worst mitzvah that you ever performed, the schar that you're going to get is incalculable. You can't make a calculation of how, how powerful, how, how pleasuresome the reward for that mitzvah is. Now, that's for the worst mitzvah. The best mitzvah that you could ever do is Limanatira sitting and learning, like what I interrupted tonight to come here. That mitzvah of sitting and learning Torah, whether it's by yourself, whether it's on Torah anytime, whether it's with a shear, whether it's from, from your Rav Shlita, whatever it is, the drushes that you hear, the Divrei Torah that you say over at the table, there is no greater reward in Shemayim than that mitzvah of Talmud Torah. The Talmud Torah, Kineget Kulam, Chavitzchayim, is the same, means that the mitzvah of Talmud Torah equals 613 mitzvahs. It's keneged kulam, it's equal on a scale. If you'd have a scale, you'd put all the mitzvahs in the Torah on one side of the scale, and the mitzvah of Talmud Torah on the other side of the scale, they would balance, or maybe Torah would be heavier. Now, I ask you, what do you think is the shear of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah? Does it mean I have to learn an hour? Doesn't mean I have to learn a whole daf of Gemara, a whole page. Doesn't mean I have to learn a whole simon and Shulchan Aruch. Like, what does it mean? What's the mitzvah? Of, when I speak about a mitzvah, I know what a mitzvah of shaking lulav and eser is. I know what the mitzvah of putting on tefillin is. How do you define the mitzvah of Talmud Torah? When do I get a check in Shemayim for Talmud Torah? So the Vilna Gaon says that every single word, word of Torah that you learn is a mitzvah of Talmud Torah. Word. That means that as we're talking right now, as my mouth is moving and all of you are listening to me, every word that I'm saying and that you're listening to is a mitzvah. That means that just tonight, in the short amount of time that I've been speaking, we probably got thousands of mitzvahs of Talmud Torah, of units of Talmud Torah. Now every unit is 613 normal mitzvahs. So we're talking about maybe close to a million mitzvahs. And the Chavetz Chaim added something else. That the learning that you do on Shabbos, 
the Talmud Torah that you do on Shabbos is Shabbos is another one of those mitzvahs that are kineged kulam. They're equal to all the mitzvahs in the Torah. So every word of Torah that you learn on Shabbos is how much? 613 times 613. 613 squared. I don't know what that is, but it's maybe, what is it? Any good math, mathematicians here? 360,000, what? 600, okay, we got a calculator here. 375,000 mitzvahs, every word that you learn on Shabbos. That's a lot of mitzvahs, and it's not cheap mitzvahs, it's it's the greatest quality mitzvahs. In Shemaim, you will literally, for one minute of learning on Shabbos, you could be the... You know, the Elon Musk in Shamayim Lahavdil. You're literally becoming a billionaire. It, it's hard to understand. And it's such an enjoyable mitzvah. It's all geschmack to learn Taira. So you get geschmack in this world, and then the next world, you come up and you're, you're a gavir. And I'll tell you a secret. Those of you who are married... Your wives get more schar than you do in Shemayim for your learning. And I'll tell you why. And it's not my Torah. I think Rebel Yalapian used to say this. One of the great Rosh Hashivas, Mashkichim in Eretz Yisrael. He says, listen to what happens. Your wife is at home. And it's not easy for your wife to allow you to come out tonight to learn. I mean, maybe for some of them it is, but for a lot of them it's not. You know, maybe they need your help uh, shopping, maybe they need your help cooking, maybe they need you to help with the, the kids, the grandkids, whatever stage of life you're on. Maybe they just want to schmooze with you. They don't want you to come to learn. It's hard for them. But they're Nashim Sidkanias, they, they have a good heart, and they know that it's important for you to learn. So they send you out at 8 o'clock at night, and you're going to come home, let's say, at 11 o'clock at night after you have night city, you have a speech, you have a whole suda after the speech, so you're going to be away from them for three hours. It's a long time. Now, out of those three hours, between you, me, and the lamppost, how, many, how much are we really learning? Okay, first we've got to make hakafas around the block to find parking. Okay, that takes, uh, you know, that means that it, from 8 o'clock it's really like 8, 10, 8, 15, okay? And then, you know, and then you have to go get a coffee, of course, in the middle. That's another, you know, knock off 10 more minutes from that. You have to go to the bathroom a little bit, and then you got to schmooze a little bit, and then you got to, you know, get ready for Myriv, and you got to, at the, when you boil it all down, of those, let's say, three hours that your wives allowed you out tonight, how much time on the clock, on the clock, are we actually learning? Let's say an hour and a half. Let's be generous. Now, so we get an hour and a half of schar and shamayim. You know when our wives, when their odometer, when their meter starts to tick? As soon as we leave the house, as soon as the door closes and you say, bye honey, I'll be back at 11.30. At that moment, that's when the odometer starts to move. The meter starts running then. And it continues to go beyond through your mayrib and through your schmoozing and through your eating and through your, through your... They're getting tremendous amounts of sky. They don't realize it. They think they're making the ultimate sacrifice for Tyra by allowing us to go out. They don't realize. 
And the Gemara, in fact, in Brachas, Yod Zion says, Nashim b'maizachion. What is the schos of women in Talmud Torah? How do they get schar? They're not mechoyev in mitzvahs, in mitzvahs Talmud Torah like a man is. They have their own obligations. They have to know halachas that pertain to them. And they have to, uh, you know, there's other things that they, they have an involvement in Talmud Torah. But what's their, how are they going to get the ability to get that turbocharged schar in Eilam Haba? This is what the Gemara asks. And the Gemara says, very simple, because they allow their husbands to go out to learn and they wait for them. It's hard for them, but they send them out and they wait for them to come home and they take their children to yeshiva and they pick them up from yeshiva. Those are the schus, and because they are helping and assisting the men in their lives to learn taira, they get tremendous amounts of schar. They're, they're richer than we are in Shemayim. If they would know this, if they'd listen to this year, they'd be kicking out of the house an hour earlier every night. Because it's tremendous the amount of schar that they're getting for us being able to learn. There's a beautiful Maisa with Rabbi Badi Yosef, that when he was a, a bacher and he was he was looking for a shidduch, so he was, somebody proposed a certain girl, and uh, her father was a Talmud Chacham, and so he went uh, on the first date, he went to, you know, to pick up the girl from the house, I don't know if they were going to have a sit-in, or he was going to take a walk with her, whatever the situation was. And the girl was all dressed up, waiting to go out. She was in her room, and her father was going to call her down when he was finished talking to, to the young uh, potential uh, suitor. So, so they sat in, uh, and, and spoke in learning. And, you know, they both loved learning. They were both, obviously, tremendous in learning, Ravad Yosef and his father-in-law. And they were, they were just like, they were just enjoying each other's company. And five minutes turned into ten minutes and turned into an hour and it turned into two hours and turned into three hours. And they lost track of time. And after a while, they said, you know, he said, what are you doing here? Oh, you want to pick up my, you want to, you want to see my daughter? It's too late already. You can't take out. It doesn't, it doesn't pass. It's not appropriate to take out my daughter, you know, so late at night. You come back tomorrow night and, uh, you know, you go out with her then. Okay, so he goes home about the SF and he, uh, in, in the meantime, the girl was very upset. She got all dressed up. She put on her makeup. She put on her dress. And, and, and she was waiting. And it's not Bakavadik. And she said to her father, she says, she says, what's going on? How could you do this? Like, you know, I was waiting. And he said, I totally forgot. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen again. He's coming back tomorrow night. Everything. She said, I don't know. I don't really want to go out. No, don't worry about it. You're going to go out with her, with him. Anyway, the next night, Ravad Yosef comes back and he says, he sits down again with the father-in-law. The girl's waiting in the room anxiously to go out. And uh, so he said to Vadi Yosef, he says, listen, my daughter said we're not allowed to talk in learning at all. We're just going to have a little cup of tea, and then, you're gonna, and then I'm going to call her down, then you're going to go out with her, okay? That's the plan? Good, good, good. So they start drinking tea a little bit, and then it came to discussing the bracha achreina. What bracha achreina do you make on tea? Because it's so hot, you can't drink it quick enough. And it's a very big discussion in Peskin whether or not you can make a bracha achreina on a hot tea, or you can't if you're drinking it fast enough. And 
they started talking about whether you should make a bracha achrein. And again, it went from five minutes to ten minutes to thirty minutes to fifty minutes to two hours. And again, they were like bringing out svarim and they were discussing it. And then all of a sudden, they realized that again, you know. So. So then uh, he said, "I'm sorry, it's too late. You can't go out with her. It's too late. Come back tomorrow night." So he said, "Okay." Anyway, in the meantime, the girl says, I am not going out with this guy. It's chutzpah. He doesn't, you know, he comes to pick me up and then he starts talking and learning with you. Is he, you want to marry him, you marry him. But I'm not, I can't do this. I, it's, not, it's, it's impossible. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not, he said, well, he's coming back tomorrow night. Well, you tell him when he comes to the door that she's not interested anymore because it's not fair to keep a girl waiting one night, two nights, not nice. So the next night, Rav Yosef comes back to the door and, uh, and the father said, I'm very sorry, you know, I'm sorry, she just doesn't want to go out with you. You're going to have to go out with somebody else. It's not, it's not Basharat, it's not, it's... So he says, okay, I respect that. He says, but ask her if it's okay for us to talk just for two minutes together. I just want to talk to her for two minutes privately. She says, I don't think she's going to want to do it. She's really upset. She doesn't want... She says, just do me a favor. Try. She says, okay, wait here. And she, he goes to the girl. She didn't get dressed up. She no makeup, no nothing. And she says, um, he says, he wants to speak to you. I don't want to speak to him. No, I told you. No, no, no. no. The answer is no. I know. So just give him a break. He, you know, he came back. He wants to go out. He just... She said, okay, I'll give him two minutes and that's it. They meet in a room alone. A few minutes later, they come out. We get a mazel tov or chasen and kala. And the father of the girl is so happy, you know, he gets such a tamar chacham for his son-in-law. And he calls over Ravadi, he says... What did you tell her? Like, what did you do in there? You have magic? Like, what did you do? It's, you turned the whole thing around. He says, I told her like this. If you take care of my Eilam Haza, I'm going to take care of your Eilam Haba. If you take care of me in Eilam Haza, you, you take care of the house, you raise the children, you make everything nice, I'm going to make it really nice for you in Eilam Haba. And that's the girl they ended up marrying, and that's what he built his whole malchus from that, from that shidduch. Women don't understand this, and how can they? We don't understand it. But there is so much to supporting Tyra, to being able to learn Tyra, to give to Tyra. To enable Tyra in any way is the greatest chus. And because... Talmatera is so valuable. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't come easy. It's the I always say to my Talmidim, as a riddle, what's the heaviest thing in the world to lift? What's the heaviest thing in the world? You know, a thousand pound barbell, you know, to lift up, uh, you know, uh, you know, really heavy uh, a car. So no, the heaviest thing in the world to lift is the cover of your Gemara. It doesn't open. It's like, you know, until you finally get that thing open, it's, it weighs a thousand pounds. You know why? Because the Sahara is putting all of the weight of the universe on top of the Gemara. He does not want you to learn. 
The Chavitz Chaim used to say, and he told us to Rabbi Chan Wasserman, that the Sahara will let you do any mitzvah in the world. You ever find it difficult to shake a lulav and eser? No, it's enjoyable. You ever find it difficult to sit in a sukkah or to, uh, you know, to dance on Simchas Tairo or to, to eat matzah something? No, these are nice mitzvahs. I, I never had any, any, any turbulence, any resistance to doing those mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are gishmak. It's, they're warm, they're fuzzy, they're friendly, they're nice. The Yitzhahara has zero problems, says the Chavetz Chaim, with letting you do any mitzvah in the world because mitzvahs are relatively... Uh, the schar for them is relatively low. Thank you very much. But Talmud Torah, learning Torah, word of Torah, is so valuable that the Sahara understands that that's where the stash of weapons lay, that's where everything that is going to destroy the Sahara is, so he's, he will do anything in his power to protect his turf. He does not want you getting near a Gemara. He does not want you near a shear. He does not, and that's why it's so hard. We make up so many excuses. You know, I don't want to go to a shear, and I don't have time. I'm so tired. I just want to stay home. I want to go on the couch. I don't want to. Why? I never do that with any other mitzvah because Talmud Torah is so super valuable that the Sahara is, which is a formidable character, he has a lot of power. He tries in any which way to stop you. You know, tonight I was driving. I left a lot of time to get to the shear. I live in Queens. I live in Kew Garden Hills. The Jackie takes you right into Brooklyn. I should have been able to get here, you know, in 35 minutes, 40 minutes. And I gave myself maybe an hour and 10 minutes to get here. It's plenty of time, but I didn't put the ways on. So all of a sudden I'm on the Jackie. Everything is fine. And, and it, goes, it comes to a complete standstill. The traffic comes to, and I, then I plug the ways in, and the shear is supposed to be 9.15, and first it says 9.05, and I call Dr. Shemto, I said, I think I'm in trouble, it's 9 over the standstill traffic, I hope you'd please get me a spot when I come, I, don't, I can't, you know, keep looking for spots and give the shear on time, and then the clock kept on going, the ways went from 9.05 to 9.07 to 9.08, 9.11, 9.22, and I was like, Laman Hashem, what's going on here? What, you know? And standstill traffic, nothing was moving on the jackie, and there's no way to get off, there's no service lane, there's nothing. And I'm driving there, inching, 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 and finally, there is this, I never saw such a thing in my life. It's a, there was a tractor trailer, like a huge truck. It got onto the jackie in the wrong direction. In the wrong direction, and it was so big, you can't have trucks on the jackie. And, and it got stuck underneath an overpass, a low overpass. And the truck looked like an accordion. It looked like so scrunched up that, I mean, I feel bad for the driver. I don't know how many tickets and how much, you know. He went in the wrong direction on the Jackie Robinson Park. You're not supposed to be on the jack. And he got, the truck got crushed. He caused thousands of people, hours of delay. And I'm thinking to myself, why did, why did this happen? And I don't know, but it might be that the Itzahara did that so that to try to stop me from coming here tonight to give a shear. Now, it sounds so far-fetched. I know, it's crazy. 
but it's very plausible because if Terah is everything and the Eitzahara is very well armed to stop us from learning Terah, then anything is possible. Anything is within his power. If it was easy, we wouldn't get this much schar. But because it's so hard and because it's so valuable, it's difficult to do, but that's why you get a lot of schar for it. And that's the beauty of learning Tyre. When you're able, as, as hard as that Gemara is to open, it's the heaviest thing in the world. But once it's open, and you sit and you learn, and there's a warmth, and there's a Kedusha, and you have a Chavrusa, you have a Shir, you have yourself, and you sit and learn, there's no greater pleasure than that in the entire world. There are 48 kinyanim of Tyra. There's 48 different ways to acquire the Tyra. And the, uh, it's a Mishnah at the end of Avis. It's actually a Brisa. The last parak of Pirkei Avis are actually not Mishnayas, they're Brisas. But if you look at the last chapter of Pirkei Avis, it's Memches Kinyanim HaTyra Niknis. There's 48 ways to acquire the Tyra. And these are different ways that you can acquire them, different ways of how to be a, a good chavrusa, how to be happy, how to be... You know what the very first way is to acquire Tyra? Anyone know what the first, the very first of the 48 ways is? Um, what? Um, Excellent. Betalmud. What does that mean, Betalmud? It means very simply, you've got to sit and learn. There's a lot of ways after you sit and learn to help you to acquire the Torah, to make it easier, to make it better, to make it stronger, to chazer, to have amelos. But the very first thing, the very first Kenyan that you can't get around is you have to sit and learn. There's no other way. There's no other way. There's a Gemara in Shabbos that says, Haragil Bener. If a person lights candles in his house, Rashi says, Ne'er Shabbos, Ne'er Chanukah, having le'banim tamidichacham, he's going to have children that are tamidichacham. I once asked a very, a Rebbe of mine, a big Rosh Hashiva, who was Nifter a few years ago, I asked him, I said, why is it just good for my kids? Forget my son being a Tamil. I want to be a Tamil Chacham. Why is lighting candles? Maybe I should light Shabbos candles, light Chanukah, and I'll be a Tamil Chacham. I'll be a Chaim Kanievsky. Why, am I, why is it that your children will be Tamid Chachamim? And he laughed. And he says, no, no, no. He said, schoolus, have a schoola, you know, that, you, that works for your children. You want your children to be a Tamid Chacham, you light some candles, and maybe it'll trickle down. But for you to be a Tamid Chacham, there's only one way to do it. You have to sit and learn. You have to sit and learn. There's no substitute. It would be great to, you know, like they used to say, if you, if you don't know material, like you're, let's say you're in school and you have a big uh, geometry test. So they used to say, when I was a kid, they'd say, you know, put the book, the textbook, under your pillow and you go to sleep at, at night and, and the next morning you'll know it maybe. It doesn't work that way with Tyra. If it does work with that way with geometry, and I don't, it didn't work for me, but if it works that way for geometry, it didn't work, it doesn't work that way for Tyra. You have to sit and learn. Now I'm making it sound like it's a big chore. It's a beautiful thing, but it's hard. It's not easy to sit and learn. It takes a lot of strength. And that's why when you have people that learn in Kylo all day and you say, ah, you know, they, you know they, they, they have it so easy. It's so easy. They sit and learn all day, nice base medrash, svarim. 
you don't understand. If you don't, if you've never learned in Kailo, you have no idea how difficult it is to learn 16 hours a day, to learn straight, like four hours straight with a chavrusa talking and screaming and fighting and, and, and looking up svarim, your eyes and your mouth and your heart and your, and your it's, it's, it's physically difficult. They say a story about Rabbi Yisrael Khan Inspector, the great rub of Kavna, and he was, he was once sitting in his base madrash and, and, and there was, the window was open and he was hearing outside two Jewish workers talking to each other. And one was saying to the other, oh, that rabbi in there, he's so lucky, he gets to sit in, in a nice base medrash. We have to, like, the whole day work and, you know, shovel and dig and cement. and do. It's so hard. It's like, he has it so easy. So Rabbi Khan put his head out the window. He says, come in. He says, how much do you guys get paid from Khan Ed or from the city to, you know, to work here the whole day? He said, we get paid, uh, you know, $75 each a day. He says, okay, tomorrow you come in here, instead of working outside, you'll work in here, and I'll pay you $100 each. But you have to sit and learn the whole day. Really? $100? We're going to get $100 and learn? This is a dream come true. Thank you, Rabbi. He says, yeah, and as long as you want, you'll, I'll, I'll pay you the same amount. So they came on time, and they sat and they opened up their, uh, whatever they were able to learn, some Mishnayas, Tzelem, Chumash, Rabbi Zalchan had to go out. He came back like an hour and a half later. These guys were gone. They were outside working again. He said, where'd you go? I was paying $100. He said, they said, Rabbi, it's not for us. It's, not, it's, it's murder. We can't do this. It's not, not, we we want to work. We want to work with our hands. It's not, we don't have the mind. To the, we can't. It's a very hard thing. You have to give so much kabod to Rabbanim and to Tamid HaChamim and to Kailal people, Avrechem, because they're really working hard Every single day, learning and talking, they're getting tremendous char for it, of course. But the the amount of effort that goes in, it's 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 really really very commendable beyond. In addition to learning Tyra, there's one other way of being able to tap in to the amazing reward of Tyre. The best thing to do is to sit and learn. We can't all do that. We have jobs, we have professions, we have families to support, and that's all, that's, that's good. That, that's a good thing. But I want to get schar and Eilam Haba for this great reward of Tyra. There's one other Eitzah that, that you have, and that is to support Tyra. And this is not an appeal. I don't have any organization that I'm support that I'm collecting for. So I'm allowed to say this, I guess, and you, you won't leave yet. But the, the ability that we have to write out a check and to give it to a yeshiva, to a Beis Yaakov, to a cheder, we don't understand the value of that check so imagine if I would tell you, you know, five years ago, there's something called Bitcoin, all right? It's about, it's about 25 cents. What is it? It's, uh, oh, it's hard to explain. It's cryptocurrency, and it's a, it's a digital currency. Do I get to actually, is it gold? No, it's not gold. Is it silver? No, is it platinum? No. So what am I buying? You're really buying nothing. 
but it's 50 cents, so you can't go wrong. Uh, really? Uh, and I give you the opportunity to buy as much of it as you want. And you could have, you know, five, ten years ago, whenever it started, 50 cents, a dollar maybe. And now fast forward, I don't know what today's price is, but it's roughly in the $50,000, $55,000 a coin. Something that ten years ago you could have bought for bupkis, for nothing. And that's what the Svarim HaKadoshim say is what it's going to be like with Tyra. When you have an opportunity, and it's nothing, it's, it's the greatest investment that you'll ever make in a zillion years. It's like a, a billion bitcoins. And you give like, a, you give a check to the local yeshiva or the shul or, or a cheder or a psakailo, whatever it is. You give a $10 bill, you give a hundred, you give a thousand dollars. In Shamayim, that gets converted into all the words of Torah that's being learned as a result. And that's an incredible thing if you stop and think about that a second. That means that we could literally be buying billions and trillions of dollars of nitzchias, of eternity, just by writing out a check. But just like learning is almost impossible because the Eight Sahara doesn't want us to get all that tzachar, that's why there's so much resistance to giving money to Tamatera as well. It's, so, it's hard. There is a, a dean of a Beis Yaakov in Denver. His name is Reb Meir Schwab. He's the son of Reb Shimon Schwab, Zechitzadik So he has a very successful um, Beis Yaakov out there, and uh, they, needed, uh, they needed to build a building because the girls were housed in a very small shul and then they built some, uh, they, they, they rented some trailers and the girls were being educated in these trailers and, you know, one trailer and two trailers in Colorado, it's cold in the winter and, you know, they were freezing in there and they had to get heaters and it was very uncomfortable and they needed a building. Beis Yaakov was, was expanding, they needed to expand their physical campus. But it's expensive to build a building, so there was a very wealthy Gavir in Colorado, in Denver. And every time Rav Schwab went to him to get tzedakah, and this guy's a, like a very wealthy man, every time he went to him, he got the same check, $180. $180. Now, that's a nice amount of money for you and me, but for this guy, $180, like, it's something like he might not have stopped and picked it up on the street. He has so much money that it wasn't, you know, it's, it's, it was ludicrous almost, $180. But that's what he was giving. And Schwab had to take it and say thank you. And this man was on his deathbed. He was in the hospital. And Mayor Schwab goes to him and he sits down with him and he says, listen, you know, he said it in a, in a much nicer way than I'm going to say it. I just don't have time to say the whole thing. But he said basically, al regalachas, he says, listen, it's not a secret that, you know, you're not buying green bananas anymore. Like, you know, your, your time is limited. And you have the opportunity. You have so much money. You're not going to be able... You, all your children, all your great-grandchildren will be wealthy from your, from your estate. We need money. We need to have... We'll put your name on the building. You, it will not cost you anything. Just give the check. He says, Rabbi, let me think about it. And, uh, and tomorrow, you know, come back to me tomorrow. I have to think about it. Okay, next day he comes back. I know you probably thought he died in the meantime. No. 
That's story number 29. This is a different story. Um, he comes back and he says, Rabbi Schwab, the check, it's in the drawer over there. So Rabbi Schwab is like, you know, happy. He's like, he goes over to the drawer, opens up the check, $180. He says, this is not what I had in mind. This is not what I spoke to you about yesterday. He says, I need real money. This is cute for like maybe the postage stamps for a day in yeshiva, but we need real money. We need a building. I need like $3 million, please. He says, Rabbi Schwab, he says, the brain and the heart is saying, do it. But my hand, my hand doesn't let me. My hand is stopping me. I can't physically write out a check like that. And Rabbi Schwab used to say that he wasn't Zeicha. He wasn't, you have to have a schus to be able to give to Tyra. You have to have a schus to be able to. It's a tremendous reward. It's a tremendous, it's, it's a merit that you can't ever evaluate. But whenever you're able to, you know, just write out the check quickly. If you ever have an opportunity to give money to tzedakah, whether it's to a local yeshiva, whether it's a yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael, whether it's a kailo, do it quickly. Don't think about it. Just write it and give it. If you think about it too long, the Yitzhar is going to give you a thousand different reasons why the money is better spent, better in your pocket. My father, Olavashalom, used to say that when, uh, about a certain person, that he's so cheap that when he opens up his wallet, the moths start to fly out. It never gets used. He doesn't share with anybody. When it comes to Tyra, don't let the Yitzhar stop you. You have to do things quickly. And when you do it like that, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu has such reward. But you have to understand the Chachma of learning Torah yourself. And I'm going to just end with a Maisa with Rav Aaron Kotler, the great Rashiva of Lakewood. He had like a core group of Balabatim that gave him a lot of money for the yeshiva, for Lakewood, when it was starting. And... And Rav Aaron always used to give, you know, this type of musr about how when you support Torah, when you become a zvulun, you know, the businessman, you're supporting Yisachar, the Talmud Chacham, how Yisachar and zvulun are, are side by side in Eilam Haba, you become a Talmud Chacham up in Eilam Haba, tremendous chusim that you get for learning Torah, for supporting Torah. So then Rav Aaron would take these balabakim that gave him a lot of money, and he said, he'd say to them, you're not learning enough every day. I want you to learn a night seder. I want you to learn or wake up a little bit early in the morning before you go to work and do dafyaimi. Do I want you? You're not learning enough. He said, they said, Rabbi, but you told us that if we support Tyra, if we write out checks to Tyra, then we're going to get Elam Haba. So what are you? What are you mutching for? What are you? What are you making us learn and get, make, giving us headaches about sitting in a base medrash and learning? I don't want. We, we're, we're, we're getting Elam Haba. You promised. He says, Yeah. He says, I promised you Eilam Haba. I'm not worried about your Eilam Haba. But I'm worried about your Eilam Hazeh. How are you going to enjoy this world? What are you doing in this world that you're going to really be able to enjoy this world? To Rav Aaron Kotler and to anybody that ever tasted Tyra a little bit, they understand what he meant. You know, I always tell my kids on Chalamayed, Chalamayed is a time that you, you show your children and your family, that Eilam Hazah is really a big scam. It's a farce. Why? Because I'm telling my kids, all right, it's, it's Cholomite. I'm off from yeshiva. My wife is off from work. You know, where do you want to go? 
We can go anywhere. And there's, they're looking, I don't know, what do you want to do today? What do you want to do? I'm giving you a choice. Whatever you want to do. We can go to the zoo, we can go to the park, we can go to Great Adventure, we can go wherever you want. And nobody knows where they want, and nobody wants to do anything. Because this world, is, there's really nothing to do in this world that's of real enjoy, enjoyment, of value. But if you sit and learn in the base Medrash on Cholomite for a half an hour, that makes the whole Yantif beautiful. That's just the reality. Or let's say you went to Great Adventure. You come back poor. You come back exhausted. Nobody's happy. Nobody won prizes there. It's, it's misery. The only thing in this world, Eilam Hazeh, Eilam Hazeh is learning Tyra. Not Eilam Haba. That's a different story. That we have no concept of the Schar of Eilam Hazeh, of Eilam Haba. But Eilam Hazeh, the secret to Eilam Hazeh is tapping into Tyra. Not just because you're going to get a lot of reward up there. You will. But you're going to get tons of reward down here. Your life will be meaningful. Your children's life will be meaningful. Your wife's lives will be meaningful. Because anything that you could do and touch Tyra, anything that you could, you could absorb Tyra into yourself, into your family, into your home, into your business, there is blessing in this world that we will never be able to describe I want to wish all of you a beautiful Shavuos. I hope that this refresher course is going to be able to allow us to be ushered into these last few days of Sira and, and the day of Kabbalah Satir with a new appreciation, new eyes, and a new attitude, and a new resolve to learn and to steig and to support the Holy Tyra HaKadoshah.